from PRX. You. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Uh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I you mean, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... You know when you walk into a room and the argument has already happened? I think the music puts me in the mood. It was one of the few songs that I knew that I figured everybody would know something of. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. There's exactly one old American hymn that everybody recognizes. And that moves people who have no feeling for the spiritual or religious because it long ago transcended the church and became a folk song and an anthem for civil rights. But its origins are unexpected and complicated. For our latest American Icon segment, Trey Kay has the story of Amazing Grace. In 1748, a slave ship was heading back to England from Charleston, South Carolina, after having discharged its cargo of African natives. They were getting closer to home, just off the coast of Donegal, Ireland, when BAM! The ship gets battered by a violent storm. The boards of the hull are popping off, and water is gushing into the hold. It seems certain that the boat is going to go down. The captain and the crew work frantically to patch the leak. The captain orders a man, named John Newton, onto the deck to steer the vessel. And he, he has to strap himself to the helm to avoid you know, sliding down the, the deck. That's Steve Turner, author of Amazing Grace, the story of America's most beloved song. And that, it's at that point that he becomes a Christian. He um, vows that, that if his life is, is saved, that, that he's going to pursue this relationship with God. Miraculously, the ship survives the storm. Newton keeps his word and devotes the rest of his life to the Christian faith. Now, this is a famous story, and it's usually spun into some triumphant, I've seen the light moment. The story goes that Newton, who had worked in the slave trade for years, at that moment renounced slavery. But did Newton really have a conversion? He didn't leave the slave trade immediately. In fact, he went back to Liverpool and became the captain of a ship for the first time. And he did three voyages as a captain of a slave ship. Newton would captain slave ships for another 14 years. During this time, he was devout to his Christian practice. But he never saw his work in the slave trade as being at odds with his religion. After health problems drove him ashore for good, he eventually made his way into the Anglican clergy. Newton became the priest of a small chapel in the English town of Olney. Over time, he began to write hymns to accompany his sermons. On New Year's Day, 1773, he introduced his congregation to a hymn that was inspired in part by his near-death experience at sea. It's called Faith's Review and Expectation. 
but it's come to be known by its opening phrase. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's Deborah Carlton Loftus, executive director of the Hymn Society of the United States and Canada. Well, it wouldn't have been to the tune that we all recognize as associated with Amazing Grace. Newton didn't write the tune that we know. Actually, he didn't write any tunes for his hymns. He wrote his verses in a common meter that could be sung to many different melodies. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's often said that Amazing Grace was written by an abolitionist. But John Newton wasn't an abolitionist when he wrote it. He never spoke of slavery from the pulpit. And it wasn't until 1788. Fifteen years after he wrote the hymn, that Newton finally spoke out against slavery, publishing an anti-slavery pamphlet, and becoming, finally, an outspoken abolitionist. But at the time, having written Amazing Grace wasn't his claim to fame. Was Amazing Grace a popular hymn in England at the time that John Newton wrote it? Actually not. It was not very well known, not considered in England to be one of his finest hymns, but it came over to the United States and uh, picked up some usage and popularity in the revival meetings of the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was a Protestant revival movement that began around 1790 and continued into the late 1850s. It started in western New York and moved down through the Ohio Valley into Kentucky and Tennessee. Folks would travel in covered wagons from far away to camp for a couple of weeks, worshiping with preachers from various denominations. Thousands of people would come together for these outdoor revival meetings. Singing was a big part of these meetings. There were choruses and refrains that people could learn quickly. At the time, America had several schools that had the purpose of training teachers to help church congregations engage in the beautiful harmonic singing of sacred words. Enthusiastic, even ecstatic singing was the hallmark of these large camp revival gatherings. Music scholars believe Amazing Grace was sung at these revivals to many different tunes. William Walker was a singing teacher in South Carolina who published a songbook called Southern Harmony in 1847. That's the first documented instance when Newton's words were set to a tune called New Britain. Deborah Loftus says that back in the heyday of the revival meetings, it wasn't only whites attending. We have documented that both free black persons and white people were together for these outdoor revivals, and there was a lot of interchange of musical styles. These singing styles were passed on through the generations in African-American families. We're hearing the singing of a family who are descendants of slaves that were featured in the 1990 Bill Moyers documentary about Amazing Grace. 
am scared. I have already I think the, the song would have had um, a great attraction for, for the African slaves uh, that were in, in shadow slavery, in bondage, in cruel, uh, horrific oppression. That's Reverend Matthew J. Watts, pastor of the Grace Bible Church in Charleston, West Virginia. Amazing Grace would have spoke to their desire for an experience of freedom, of one day seeing God face to face, of being with him for all of eternity and no longer subjected to the type of cruel treatment they experienced during slavery. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining... Pastor Watts is singing a verse that today is often included in performances of Amazing Grace. But it's not something that was written by John Newton. That's because camp revival music leaders tended to do a bit of mashing up of hymns singing them to different tunes, lifting verses from one hymn and singing them in another. That's what happened with Amazing Grace. In 1852, some of the verses written by Newton, along with the When We've Been There 10,000 Years verse, appeared in the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Tom sings these Amazing Grace verses in his darkest hour. Author Harriet Beecher Stowe was the daughter and sister of revival preachers, and she may have heard Amazing Grace sung this way at a revival meeting. Some think her novel may have played a role in shaping how we sing Amazing Grace today. So it's a moment of fusion between traditional, you might say, high society white culture and popular culture, black culture, revival evangelical culture. Jim Basker teaches English and history at Barnard College, and he's the editor of Amazing Grace, an anthology of poems about slavery. He says Stowe had met with runaway slaves, and she read slave narratives, and that she knew the song would resonate with African Americans. So when she reached into that scene, and this is a moment of fusion between whites and blacks, it's a white woman author creating one of the most memorable black characters in all of 19th century literature, she reached for what would be the paradigmatic song from his soul that he might sing on his deathbed. And it's Amazing Grace. The first recording of Amazing Grace was in 1922 by a group known as the Original Sacred Harp Choir. this time, the hymn was adopted as a folk song, and musicologist John Lomax and his son Alan were famous for capturing authentic folk performances, like this 1935 recording of Kentucky folk singer Aunt Molly Jackson. In the 1920s and 30s, there were the beginnings of a recording industry, catering to the demand for songs appealing to a religious black audience. That's Reverend J.M. Gates' recording of Amazing Grace, which sold thousands of copies. Ruby, 
throughout the century, all of the great gospel singers would record the song, like Sister Rosetta Tharp. During the Civil Rights era, activist Fannie Lou Hamer would lead protesters to sing songs like Amazing Grace, helping to define racial equality as a moral and religious pursuit. By the 1960s, white folk singers were finding their way to Amazing Grace, like Arlo Guthrie, who sang the song at Woodstock. But Guthrie's version was not nearly as popular as one by another white artist who would soon follow. My name is Judy Collins. In 1969, Judy Collins was attending what she calls an encounter group when things got really contentious. Collins' record producer happened to be there. And he said, you know, people are really at each other's throats. Isn't there anything you could do to settle them down? Why don't you sing something? And my grandmother was a church-going Methodist, and uh, she had taught me Amazing Grace when I was a little girl. So I sang Amazing Grace. was one of the few songs that I knew that I figured everybody would, would know something of, and they all sang, and it did settle everybody down. The next day, that same producer called and said, we have to record that song. So I said, well, let's go into a church somewhere. And so we went up to uh, the campus of Columbia University, and we went into the chapel. It's called St. Paul's. It's a gorgeous chapel, and we all got together and we recorded Amazing Grace. Electra Records released Collins' recording of Amazing Grace on her 1970 Wales and Nightingales album. My record company was flabbergasted. They didn't know what hit him. The album went gold, and her recording of John Newton's hymn became a top 40 hit. And then it seemed like everybody, black or white, rock or blues or country, wanted to put their own signature on the song. Judy Collins' recording of Amazing Grace was also a hit on British radio, which means that two centuries after Newton had penned it in England, where it never really caught on, it was finally finding an audience. This caught the ear of a bagpiper from the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, who was inspired to give Collins' arrangement a Highlander feel. The Dragoon Guard's recording of Amazing Grace also became a major hit in England, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa. 
Collins liked hearing her arrangement on the bagpipes. And I am thrilled that it has now permeated the police and firefighters. For centuries, bagpipes have been an important part of Celtic funeral traditions. But the Dragoon Guard's recording sparked the tradition of piping Amazing Grace and memorials for police, firefighters, and military. It's certainly a tradition New Yorkers know well after the attacks on September 11, 2001. I can hear it. You know, I live on the Upper West Side, and about a block from me is the Firefighters Memorial on Riverside Drive. And so every once in a while, we hear the bagpipes coming up from the river, and we hear them playing Amazing Grace. And we see, like, 5,000 firefighters out there in the street with their uniforms. It's, it's an amazing thing. It's very moving. And it's, of course, the appropriate uh, place for the, the, this song to go. I mean, it belongs in these situations because it is regenerating the idea of hope and forgiveness. Amazing And after a mass shooting at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, President Barack Obama offered the song's message of hope and forgiveness to the mourners. Author Steve Turner. You know, Obama sings at the church in Charleston after the... uh, the murders and uh, you know, sung when policemen have funerals in New York. It's, it, it just seems kind of like an all-purpose, hopeful song. Barnard College professor James Basker says the song, both the musical notes and its lyrics, appeal to people at moments of intense suffering. And they appeal without any narrowness. There's no specific condition. There's no specific religious faith. There's no specific cultural context. It's just about that thing that human beings share, which is pain. And the imaginative yearning, and this is the thing about human beings, we're able to imagine and to yearn for joy and peace, for relief from the miseries of this world. Um, so it's, it's the use of the human imagination, both the creative one that made the song and the receptive, interactive one that can identify with it, that lifts us up. Throughout its history, Amazing Grace has spoken to Americans' belief in new beginnings and reinvention. That's a very important part of the American mentality, you know, that you can start again, that you can come from nothing and succeed, and you can overcome a bad or dubious or hampering past. So all those things are are in the song. You can feel as though you are lost. And somehow know that you'll be found. I'm found. What you say, girl? But now I'm found. He still can't feel you. But now I'm found. Was lying. But now I see. Oh. 
That piece was produced by Trey Kay, who also hosts a podcast called Us and Them. By the way, Judy Collins' recording of Amazing Grace was just selected to be a part of the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. You can hear any of our dozens of American icons at Studio360.org. Listen to them all, and you'll earn a degree in American Studies from Studio 360 University. But seriously? The Webby Awards just announced their 2017 nominees, and here at Studio 360, we are delighted to find that we're finalists for the Best Arts and Culture Podcast. If you like hearing this show every week as much as we like making it for you, please vote for us. You'll find a link on our Facebook page and at studio360.org slash webbies. That's W-E-B-B-Y-S. The voting deadline is Thursday, April 20th. Thanks for the support. All right. <laughs> Coming up, moving to a new school when you're 12 is usually going to suck, let alone a school in a new country. So imagine doing that when you're black and moving to South Africa under apartheid. You know, I like to think of it as coming into South Africa at a time when, you know, when you walk into a room and the argument has already happened, but the tension is still there. The novelist Yawande Omotosho talks about her new book, The Woman Next Door. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. I recently read a terrific new novel. It's called The Woman Next Door. It's by Yawande Omotosho. And it's about a pair of successful, well-to-do elderly women who live in a suburban enclave of Cape Town. Marion is a white South African, and Hortensia is black and retired to South Africa after working in Britain. And Yawande Omotosho is here with me to talk about her novel and her life. Yawande, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you very much. So will you start us off with a reading from The Woman Next Door? Yes. And what you're going to read starts where Hortensia uh, is going next door to to meet Marion after she has found out she was not invited to the regular neighborhood committee meetings. Hortensia had taken a short trip to Marion's and pressed the buzzer on her intercom. It's Hortensia James from next door. She had not been offended by the absence of any show of welcome from her neighbor or the other residents. They had not come to Catherine to make friends, something both she and Peter had managed without for the bulk of their lives. Wait, I'll call my madam, a disembodied voice said. Hortensia leaned her shoulder against the wall. Hello? That must be Marion. It's Hortensia from next door. This was the moment when Hortensia understood that she would not be invited in. The slight annoyed her briefly, but she waved it away as unimportant. I'll be attending the meetings. It mustn't sound like she was asking permission. The committee meetings. Hmm. I hadn't realized you were owners. Hortensia still listening at the buzzer like a beggar. Yes, well, we are. Oh, well, I was confused. And... Hortensia could almost hear Marion searching for another gear. Is that gentleman your husband? 
she wasn't asking so much as scolding. Who, Peter? Yes. Again, this hadn't surprised Hortensia she'd fallen in love with a white man in 1950s London. They had been asked on many occasions to verify their courtship, to affirm that they were attached, to validate their love. Within a year of being together, they were practiced at it. Yes, Peter is my husband. I see. In the silence, Hortensia supposed Marion was thinking, inching towards her next move, preparing another strike. But instead, she heard a sigh and almost missed the details of the upcoming meeting. Marion even threw in a dress code as a parting gift. We dress for our meetings, Mrs. James. We follow rigorous decorum. As if she thought dignity was something Hortensia required schooling in. That was Yuande Omotosho reading from her new novel, The Woman Next Door. So the, the the character of Marion, the white woman, is not, as you portray her, wasn't an aggressive defender of apartheid, but she didn't do anything to, to fight against it. Was that standard in South Africa? I remember meeting a woman and speaking to her. I was so moved. A white South African, she just said, you know, I didn't do anything when she talked about apartheid. And she said, I live with that every day now. Huh. And I, I was like, wow, that's that's my character, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a way. Look, you know, South Africa, we, we had the TRC. We looked at the obvious monsters. You know, we, we looked at... Explain what the TRC So is. The, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was a commission headed by Archbishop Desmond right. Tutu. And it looked like, hey, great, all fine. No, no blood, some, no Some violence. degree of that. Some yeah. degree yeah. of, okay, we've done that. Obviously, yeah. that's, that's false. And now, decades later, we know that as a society and we're dealing with that. So what's coming up now is that that didn't solve anything. And so the Marian character is very deliberate for me because I wanted to look at that person. She, she didn't defend apartheid. She hasn't poisoned anybody or right. shot anyone or said good. Right. You know, she hasn't done those things. But what about the little domestic crimes of apartheid, right. the quiet things in a corner? What about the little things that yeah. we've done? And we're complicit. So, Marianne, many people were complicit. Right. Your father is a very big deal Nigerian and South African writer, uh, Kole Omotosho. Mm. Talk about that, about going into the family business. To be honest, so I, my first degree is in architecture. I'm an architect. And my dad was quite instrumental in making sure I studied architecture and not English literature, which is what I thought I had to study to be a writer. Because you know, he wanted you to earn. I, yeah, he was just like, listen, <laughs> look, look, sit down. And he gave me the talk. And I went ahead and, and did that degree. I went back and did a master's in creative writing. Um, and I just informed my dad. And, you know, and, and he's been supportive. And people often say, oh, do you feel pressure? I don't feel pressure. I feel lucky, feel supported. But there isn't the sense like, oh, you've got to live up to something. Yeah. They, your family, uh, moved from Nigeria to South Africa when you were 12. 12. Mm-hmm. And apartheid was in its last legs, but still in effect, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, why does uh, this black African family with options and big fame, <laughs> wherewithal and all that, decide to move to Apartheid South Africa. It was a very deliberate choice of my dad's. I mean, we thought he was insane. As kids, we just thought, why are you taking us to this place where they don't like people like us? But he'd left Nigeria some time before because it was also, Nigeria was going through its own, we weren't yet in democracy, yes. But it was a time where Nigerian academics and and intellectuals were being killed, letter bombed. You know, you, you couldn't write what you wanted to write. So he, we'd stayed there, but he'd left from like 88. He'd left and was lecturing, um, in Europe. He wanted to bring us back together as a family again. He didn't want 
to not be on the continent. He wanted to stay in Africa and he assessed the situation and said it doesn't look fabulous yet, but he felt it was going to get better. And so we went at a time when there wasn't this mass influx from the rest of Africa to South Africa. So he, he was sort of betting correctly on what on yeah, history. Yeah, they hadn't done the referendum yet. Right. So it was still in discussion. Mandela was still in prison. Mandela was still in prison. There were there were discussions, um, but South Africa hadn't been through its. You know, there was massive bloodshed between ninety two and ninety four. You know, the warring between um, political parties. So so much still had to happen that we were there to experience. So as a twelve year old, you come to this which is a time of change in a person's life, uh, you, you come to this country undergoing this change. I mean, how did those two things work together? Being an adolescent as South Africa goes from apartheid South Africa to democratic South Africa. Yeah, it was, you know, it was it was very strange. And I think, you know, I'd like to think of it as coming into South Africa at a time when, you know, when you walk into a room and the argument has already happened, but the tension is still there. Yes. So you and you're 12, so you don't know all the details of what's gone on, but you, you know, you can sense that something's the matter. We obviously, my parents sent us to the better schools. Those were schools that were only just opening to black people. So I went from Nigeria to suddenly being, um, being weird, being strange, looking strange. And being one of a few black kids in a class. Being one of a few black kids and then not even being a black South African. You know, so it was difficult and, and a strange time. Well, it must have been a little scary to say, okay, I am this person who's lived here for more than half of my life. But to to write a novel that's all about the history of this place that I'm not really from, yeah. that, that took some bravery. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, although people – some people kind of uh, challenge me and say, why isn't Hortensia black? Black South African, sorry. Why do you make her and, – and I said, you know, I just, I just needed a little bit of – room um, to not be making a major character a black South African. And that has to do with my own sense of what I can imagine right now and what I feel I can't imagine. Right. Um, South Africa is interesting because it has 11 official languages. Um, but, but for me, when I write a black South African character, I'm writing somebody whose first language I have no grasp of. And that, that's a, something I, I struggle with. Yeah. Um, so as an architect, uh, were you a designer of houses or high-rises or gas stations? or um, <laughs> For a long time, I did um, social housing with the company I worked for about five years or so. Um, As we call it, public housing. Public housing. And and then I moved into the more corporate scene and, and worked for a property developer. You know, I need to confess my sins. And we did hotels and shopping malls, um, office blocks. At the moment with my company, I mean, we do anything because we're new. Oh, you new. still do it? Uh, yes, but it's architecture light because my, my two partners are on extended maternity leave and I take what I can cope with as um, uh-huh. as a one person and I'm balancing it with the writing. Uh-huh. And how does that work? I mean, when, when do you write? It's a very experimental lifestyle. But you do you expect you'll, you'll keep doing both for the rest of time? I hope so. My poor father sent me to school and I got an architectural degree. So, but no, it's not about him. I actually enjoy architecture and I, I think I'd be sad to not have some kind of foot in it. It's important to me. Are you as good an architect as you are a writer? <laughs> oh dear, how do you answer that? <laughs> I do love them both almost equally and I have the commitment to be as good at both. You know, I'm interested in, in being a, a great designer uh-huh. And I'm interested, I'm very interested in writing better and better books. We should poll the critics. <laughs> it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Yawande Omatosho's new novel is called The Woman Next Door, and it's available now.
Coming up, the formula for a heartbreaking song. Cheerfully brave lyric over sad music is, like to me, super sad. Amy Mann shares her playlist of her favorite sad songs by other artists and plays live in our studio and discusses Donald Trump, as one does. That's still ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. Amy Mann began her solo career in 1990, right after the breakup of her new wave band Till Tuesday. Since then, she has made eight albums, each one filled with surefire pop, crowd-pleasing topics like ennui and existential dead ends and broken relationships. In 1999, her song Save Me was a major part of the great Paul Thomas Anderson movie Magnolia. It was nominated for both an Oscar and a Grammy, but her music plays an even bigger role in Magnolia. In one scene, all the characters sing along to her song Wise Up, whose lyrics end with the suggestion, just give up. No, it's not going to stop, so just give up. No wonder she's got a reputation for making songs in the vicinity of malaise. And now, instead of fighting that caricature, she is embracing it. Her new album's called Mental Illness and may be her most Amy Mannish work yet. She and a couple of her collaborators are in the studio now to play songs from Mental Illness and talk about the music that influenced it. Amy, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you so much for having me. Um, before we, we talk and I interrogate you mercilessly, um, <laughs> will you play a song? Yeah, this song is called Goose Snow Cone. Looking into the face of the goose snow cone. Should be shaking it loose, but you do it all wrong. Every look is a truce, but it's written in stone. Gotta keep it together when your friends come back. Checking the weather, but they wanna know why. Even birds and the fair are finding hard to fly. I thought I saw my fate in Oregano Crow. Come by Always checking the weather But the 
the face of the good snow cone. I could pick up the pace, but I couldn't go That was Amy Mann playing and singing Goose Snow Cone from her new album, Mental Illness. Um, you are here with two with bandmates. Who are those men? Uh, this is on guitar. I'm playing bass. On guitar is Jonathan Colton, who I co-wrote uh, two or three songs with on the, for the record. And John Sperney is on piano. Jonathan Colton, of course, is a major mega celebrity to me, but he is on a game show. And what's the name of that game show, Jonathan? It's called Ask Me Another. See, now you recognize his voice. <laughs> Having Jonathan Colton here is, is, makes me think all of public radio exists in a big like studio lot and people can just come from soundstage to soundstage. To... I love this idea. Can I live on this compound? <laughs> yes. Yes, you may. Um, before um, you announced this album, uh, you said, and I quote you, I'll just give myself permission to write the saddest, slowest, most acoustic, if they're all waltzes, so be it, record I could. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's about it. So, you, so that quote was funny, but you also meant it and you yeah. were kind of owning your stereotype. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and pushing it and yeah. embellishing it. Right. We know what makes sad lyrics sad, but we kind of sort of know it when we hear it of what makes sad music sad, but what does? I mean, is it like minor chords versus major chords? Or? I think I think a mixture. I think a mixture of the two. I think a juxtaposition of cheerfully brave lyric over sad music is like to me super sad. You know, I mean, I think having things in contrast. I think all minor can get a little too like House of the Rising Sun, and then it's just that that's kind of melodramatic, and yes, melodramatic yeah. is not sad. Only song I could ever play at twelve on a guitar was that one. Yeah, it's a good it's yeah, a good yeah. choice. Um, so you, because you're a kind person, have made us a playlist of your favorite uh, sad songs that inspired this album, some of them, which is also a Spotify playlist on our website, studio360.org. Oh, my God. There's people are going to be weeping. Well, that's what we're here <laughs> for, really. Um, I want to play some of them, and we're going to start with uh, Elliot Smith's song, They're Already Weeping, yeah. uh, <laughs> called Waltz Number 2XO. First the mic, then a half second That is a waltz. You've mentioned waltzes before. Yeah. Uh, uh, is there something sad about 3-4? I think there's. it's sad and wistful and bittersweet. It's kind of got it all. And it and swings in a nice way. I really love the, the, the swingy feel of 3-4. Of 
Well, let's listen to another track uh, from your playlist. Uh, this is Dan Fogelberg's uh, singer I haven't thought of in a long time, Same Old Lang Syne. So I have two questions. One, why are your bandmates laughing at you or you at them? They're, I think we're laughing at each other because we're all, we, we all know this song. This is a real Jonathan Colton influence. Um, it's so soft and sad and 70s and maudlin. And, yes, maudlin, and, uh, exactly. John Spurney on the piano singing along with every word. Uh, yeah, everyone, everyone in this room knows that song. And, and so it was, you were drawn to it? Because it was just it was your childhood, or I actually Jonathan, I think play. I don't think I knew this. You played that song for me. Oh, really? Did uh, I introduce this? Song yeah, to you? I don't think I I was aware of the song. Yeah, Jonathan Colton. Yeah, the spotlight's on you. Oh boy, what's the case for Dan Fogelberg? <laughs> uh, you know, I, sure, Dan Fogelberg is maudlin and maybe a little melodramatic and probably a little on the nose sometimes, but. Boy, you know, I mean, that song is about being sad at Christmas. And if you don't feel melodramatic when you're sad at Christmas, I mean, you're not giving yourself permission to feel everything you can feel. Somebody's got to do that for us. Well said. Well put. Finally, someone asked me. <laughs> Finally, I can talk about Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> can we do an hour on Dan Fogelberg? <laughs> okay. Um, so, Amy, as you say, you have worked with uh, many comedians, uh, many of whom I guess are your friends. Uh, you made a, videos with Patton Oswalt, the great Patton Oswalt. Um, I saw you on Portlandia. They seem like very different things to me. The, the sensibility I know of, of many musicians and many comedy people are different. Um, the, the, the crafts are different. But then there's – here's you. Here's Jonathan Colton. Here's, here's other examples. Is there a connection or is it just random? Well, people that I think are very funny usually are very good word twisters and use language in a really interesting and precise way because comedians are wordy. You know, they have they, – they bend words. And they're in sad on the inside. Oh, my god. They're just so damaged and so sad. That cliche is true. That's one of – most really cliches is. are true, of course. It but, really yeah. is. Yeah. I know. And, you know, structuring a joke has its own rhythm. So that feels very musical to me. And it's a real intellectual process that, I, that I, I'm in admiration of. Yeah. A non-comedian whom you admire, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, the singer and songwriter of another song on your playlist, a very famous song called River. It's coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees. They're putting up reindeer, singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river I could skate away. That is from Joni Mitchell's Blue, uh, which must be one of the prettiest, saddest uh, yeah. <laughs> albums ever made. Is mental illness kind of your version of Blue 40-odd years later? I think that's not a terrible comparison. I mean, I didn't grow up listening to Joni Mitchell. I think I heard that record uh, much, much later. But it is, you know, it's, it's starkness, the moodiness of that song. Uh, the sense of isolation, and and I like how specific it is. You know, she's specifically in Los Angeles, feeling totally cut off, thinking there is sort of an imaginary 
solution somehow, but you know, but it's but you know, there's not. Yeah. Uh, during last fall's presidential campaign, uh, as part of I guess you could call it an anti-Trump project, it was called Thirty Days, Thirty Songs. You. Uh, wrote and, and sang a song from his point of view, which was very unlike, I think, the other 29, uh, and, and made me like it a lot. Uh, it's called Can't You Tell? Now, that, that's the chorus. I don't want this job. Can't you tell I'm unwell? For for years now, I, I have been maintaining that his problem is that he is unwell. And so I was glad to hear that. But also I was glad to hear it not in the way I would say it, in this mean way about somebody else, but in this sympa- actually kind of sympathetic way yeah. from his point of view. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think uh, like most people, if they could <laughs> – if they could behave better, they would be behaving better. I, I don't think he has – Speaking of mental illness. Yeah. I mean I don't think he control, can control himself. I think his, he has very distorted thinking that, that leads him to make the decisions he makes. Right. I mean I hate when people do this armchair diagnosis. Yeah, but what, I don't. But what the hell? Let's go. Um, I think he probably has a little dementia. I think he is wildly narcissistic. Um, I think he, you know, maybe has some other personality disorder. Like he feels a little manic. He feels like if has a flavor of maybe uh, somebody's taking Adderall and a little of amphetamine addiction. So that that would just be my wild yeah. guess. Well, thank you, Doctor Mann. <laughs> um, um, I want to thank you very much for you. for talking for about uh, this is fun. making sad music and sharing uh, your favorite sad songs and making this playlist and all that. Um, but will you and those two dudes uh, play another song? Yeah, let's do it, dudes. And what this is called? This is Patient Zero. One, two, three. Serve you champagne like a hero When you landed someone carried you back here on out, your patient zero Smelling ether as they hand you the rag Life is good, you look around Think I'm in the right neighborhood But honey, you just moved in Life is grand, and wouldn't you like to let it go As planned That's Amy Mann playing Patient Zero from her new album, Mental Illness, which is out now. You can watch a video of her performance here in our studio at studio360.org. That's where you'll also find the playlist of all ten of Amy's favorite sad songs, including tracks by Randy Newman, Frank Sinatra, and Fiona Apple. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our interim executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. The senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. And the technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Daniel Guimet. Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Saunders. And our intern is good old... Max Gibson. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. 
PRI Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, some role players at Comic-Con think that wearing brown makeup to be Luke Cage is the same as wearing green makeup as the Hulk. For as many people that actually want to defend the practice of blackface, I said, well, my skin is not your costume. The role of race in role-playing. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.